0: Gabe Meldoff went to McGill. Now he works near Capitol Hill. Gabe's a lawyer at Goodwin and a professor at Maine. He's now an expert in the privacy domain. And uh, with that, I'm happy to welcome uh, Gabe Meldoff. He's a uh, data privacy and and, uh, cyber attorney at Goodwin and thank you uh, so much for joining the podcast Gabe.
1: Oh man you're welcome thanks for having me that was amazing I, I feel like that's it you don't need anything more we could just stop <laughs> it right there you've said it all in two lines.
0: Uh, yeah yeah <laughs> Um, very good yeah soon uh, ChatGPT will be probably writing that for me so uh, <laughs> I was okay. gonna
1: ask if, if it had a hand actually.
0: No no it, it didn't I probably should though I'd probably write it better than I do but uh, okay, <laughs> so let's, let's jump in here. Um, so uh, let's talk about growing up. So you grew up in Canada and Montreal and uh, talk a little about growing up. You know, did you always see yourself as being a, a privacy lawyer uh, from straight out of the womb? Uh,
1: I, I think you would get a difference of opinion uh, if you asked my father, then, then the answer I'll give. Uh, I absolutely did not see myself being a lawyer, let alone a privacy lawyer. I don't think I knew what a privacy lawyer was back then. Um, But my dad was a lawyer, and we used to have these just vicious arguments at the dinner table. Um, And I think that was really kind of preparation for the rigor that law demands. And um, I think he just really enjoyed arguing with me because he used to, you know, egg me on and tell me that I would make a good lawyer and I should do it. And of course, his prodding in that direction made me want to be a lawyer less. And so I sort of blocked off any desire to do it until one day I couldn't figure out what else I was going to do and decided to go to law school.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, before we get to the, uh, that one day, let's talk a little about, you know, some of those first jobs that you had in high school i as a ski coach sailing um, working in construction and demolition. So talk a little about, uh, all of those, uh, those gigs. Yeah,
1: sure. So, um, uh, growing up, uh, I, I, guess it, it's a bit more typical in, in Canada with the weather. Um, but I, I grew up ski racing and it was actually a big part of, you know, what I focused on growing up. Uh, and so I know it sounds kind of weird to a broader audience, but, um, ski racing was pretty accessible. Uh, there, and uh, the progression is you kind of race for a while, and unless you're really good, which I was not, um, the next step is you can make a bit of money coaching, uh, so I moved in to the, the coach position, I guess towards the end of high school, um, though I did keep racing on the side and through university, um, yeah, and and similarly, um, I went to a summer camp that had a focus on sailing, uh, and quickly realized I really liked it. Uh, so I spent a lot of time doing that in my summers growing up uh, and competed a bit there and then ultimately ended up teaching sailing as well.
0: Fascinating. Do you still get to do those uh, today, skiing and sailing at all?
1: Oh, not as much as I as I wish I could. Uh, skiing still a, a couple times a year, but here in D.C., there isn't a whole lot of it. Uh, and sailing, really, not at all. But I'm, I'm hopeful that those skills aren't gone forever.
0: Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, now, like, what about uh, construction? Uh, talk about that. Oh yeah, I had some friends who, um,
1: who had construction companies, or who worked for construction companies, and they're always looking for extra help when they had a demolition at a, a nearby site. So. That was a good way to pick up odd jobs through high school and university just you know wield a crowbar and smash some stuff it was you know great fun
0: wow were you working in with like real machines or you're doing it kind of all by hand all by hand
1: it was uh yeah it was pretty old school
0: wow wow all right interesting now uh so then you went to school at uh mcgill so Um, talk about that you're in environmental sciences so at this point you still are definitely not thinking about uh, law school right and then so get into you know that the the time you spent in college
1: yeah I absolutely wasn't thinking about law school at that point I think um, I, I was really torn between pursuing a liberal arts education and pursuing a scientific one and was looking for something that would allow me to keep building out my scientific knowledge. I really liked physics, I liked biology, um, and wanted to do that. But I also really liked writing. Um, I liked history, I liked philosophy, uh, and kind of stumbled onto environmental science. Um, You know, this was 2007, the green movement was absolutely growing, um, like crazy concerns about Um, climate change were obviously a huge deal as they are even more so now. Um, and it seemed like an amazing opportunity to study in a program where I'd focus on the sort of liberal arts side, the political policy side of climate change issues and environmental change, uh, while also learning the science side. Uh, and I didn't have any clue what I would do with it afterwards, but I just love the idea of being part of, um, an important conversation, um, pursuing something that I felt would, you know, hopefully make the world a better place. Uh, and and also getting to expand my my own sort of skill set in scientific and, you know, policy domains.
0: Wow. So let's get into a little bit of that, uh, the, the policy work that you did. Did you actually end up going to uh, Tanzania?
1: I did, yeah. So my first summer of university... Um, I came across an opportunity to work with uh, an HIV AIDS patient rights group in a really remote corner of Tanzania. Um, a really fascinating organization, actually. Um, they, were, they had been founded in, I guess, the, the, the mid aughts um, when uh, a, a doctor from Doctors Without Borders had reached their village and, um, after doing some testing, realized that about 30 to 40% of the region. Um, was suffering with HIV uh, and didn't know it, um, and you know this was you know 2004. Uh, knowledge of HIV/AIDS was widespread. Testing across Africa had been really widespread for over a decade, almost two decades, really. And there had been a lot of aid do- dollars that had come in, dollars that had come in through um, international organizations and NGOs and churches, um, and. For some reason, that money wasn't reaching this little pocket. Uh, And um, what happened was along the way as it got towards the village, um, the officials throughout the chain were sort of siphoning off the the money that would have been used for testing and treatment um, and found that it was better not to do any testing because then there wasn't a problem they'd have to deal with and they'd be able to um, continue enriching their own lives. So um, this doctor uncovered it, um, spread the news about what was going on. And a bunch of patients who were suffering really poor, really badly with HIV uh, formed a group that started advocating for the rights of other patients to get testing and treatment. um, And started making a splash uh, and really, you know, made change in the region uh and uh i had an opportunity to work with them uh so um decided to spend my first summer of, of university doing that uh they they gave me a, a plane ticket and you know, a couple hundred dollars and a video camera to go help them
0: um raise awareness for their cause and it was an amazing experience wow so what was your role there you were recording uh and, and sort of advertising their 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 purpose
1: Yeah, exactly, it was helping them put together videos, it was doing some blogging, and then just basic institutional support. Mm -hmm. Um, You you have to remember, these are people who had no formal education, a lot of them couldn't read or write, um, but they were starting to get publicity beyond sort of their local um, area, and were trying to spread the message um to to the funders who are sending money towards those organizations and also to the government to take action to prevent these corrupt officials from blocking aid from coming in um so they were really just looking for um very basic computer skills to to help them get their message beyond what they'd been able to reach before.
0: well, that's great now um Probably, in a different summer of college, I think you went to uh, to Israel and uh, maybe somewhere else in the Middle East, so talk about you know talk about uh, that experience. yeah,
1: so uh, my experience in tanzania was was really lucky. i you know, I couldn't have planned it better, and it just gave me this um hunger to do something that felt as challenging and meaningful as as that experience had been. Um, and the opportunity came through um, Birthright, which is a program for, um, for Jewish people in North America to visit Israel for free. Uh, and so I, it's a 10 day trip. I went uh, and then extended for the rest of the summer and was able to get an internship with an organization there called Peace Now, um, which was the, the largest peace advocacy organization in Israel. And the mandate was to um, help them study um the development of settlements in the West Bank. So a really cool experience just um, traveling across the region, talking to people, trying to understand um, where construction was happening and how people felt about it. Um, uh, so also a really interesting experience.
0: fascinating, well. Wow. um, so, then did you go to law school straight after that? And I guess talk about uh, that decision. Yeah, so
1: um, I didn't. I took a year after graduating undergrad uh, before I finally figured out that I that I wanted to go to law school. Um, at first I was looking for jobs in the environmental sector um, and couldn't quite figure out uh, what to do. And what had resonated with me from my two summer experiences um, was just how um important it was to have a voice and to understand um the rules of the game. It seemed to me that um law presented an opportunity to make change because by understanding the rules you can um you can advocate for those who who need the help um and you can also shape outcomes uh so you know very slowly and reluctantly um I I came around to the idea that my father was indeed right and I should pursue um, a law degree, Uh, and so um, I applied I I spent that year after um, undergrad. um, Still working as a ski instructor, doing more construction, I also worked with a a PR firm writing press releases um, and then ultimately applied to law school.
0: Well. Um, so then let's talk about, uh, you went to University of Maryland for law school. So I guess talk about the decision to, uh, cross the border and, you know, how you, um, you know, how you ended up there.
1: Yeah, I, I, it, it wasn't really planned. Um, I initially wanted to go to law school in Canada, uh, and was looking at schools there, but I thought that I wanted to, to, to be an environmental lawyer. I wanted to keep, um, I really enjoyed my undergrad studies and was looking for a program in law that would allow me to keep that focus, um, where I'd look at things from a policy lens, but also um, you know, get a solid legal education. Um, and found as I was looking that a number of US schools had great environmental law programs uh, that we just didn't have at the Canadian schools I was looking at. Uh, so I applied to a handful of US schools, not really thinking I would go, but just why not? Um, There, you know, there's a substantial cost difference between US law schools and Canadian ones. So that was a big factor. Um, But then ultimately got accepted at my top choices in the US uh, and was offered scholarships that made them comparable to the Canadian options. Um, So I decided to give it a shot. Um, I I will say uh, I was a big fan of The Wire uh, in undergrad. I thought it was an amazing program. Uh, so, uh, I had applied to University of Maryland partly because of its environmental program and partly because being in Baltimore, I thought it'd be really cool to see, uh, you know, if Baltimore really lives up to the wire. (laughs) Does it? (laughs) Uh, In some ways, yes. In some ways, no, I think, I think the wire gets a lot right. Um, there's a lot of kind of institutional dysfunction in, in Baltimore and embedded, um issues um and crime and poverty um i think the the wire doesn't capture um necessarily the progress the city has made um and you know how nice the city it is to live in actually
0: great great um now let's get into some of the things that you did in law school so you were still thinking probably that you wanted to be an environmental lawyer at that point because you were working you know, in the environmental crimes unit. And so talk about uh, some of those early experiences in law school.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, to make more explicit some of the threads that I think were um, in my head at the time, uh, you know, one thread was this environmental um, concern that I wanted to pursue. Um, another thread was um, international. I wanted the ability to to work in different countries, to interact with different cultures, um, and for that to be um, a focus of my career. Um, And and another thread was um, this intersection of policy and science and technology. Um, And what I found after my first summer interning at the Maryland Attorney General Attorney General's um, Environmental Crimes Unit was that um, the the field of environmental law, at least as I saw it at the time, and you know someone can correct me if if they see it differently. It had become a bit um, ossified. There weren't recent changes in environmental law. Um, the policy issues were being debated at a policy level, but were not flowing down to the legal. Uh, analysis, which really was caught in these statutes from the, the 70s um, that had long, long histories of um, of case law interpreting them. Um, so I, I, I didn't feel that environmental law was was giving me the opportunity to participate in policy development the the way I expected it to, um, and I was worried that it was fixed in location and not as international as I was hoping. Um, so. Uh, those concerns led me to um, ask professors, like, "What do I do? How do I solve this problem? What What is there that can uh, that that will help me um, sort of fulfill all these different things I'm trying to do?" Um, and I happened to be really lucky. Um, University of Maryland at the time had a great set of privacy professors. Uh, I didn't know it because I didn't even know what privacy law was, but some of the leading lights in the field were there. Uh, So we had Danielle Citron, uh, who taught a privacy law course, James Grimmelman, who taught internet law, Frank Pasquale, who who taught administrative law and also taught health privacy, just a really incredible roster of, um, uh, of professors in privacy, some of the giants in the field, uh, and it was a small school, so inevitably I I spoke to them about my conundrum and all of them said, you got to look at this privacy thing.
0: Wow. Why is it? Uh, why did they say that?
1: Uh, I, I think the key point for them was that the law was so nascent at the time and still is and, and so quickly developing that it really was a place where you could participate in policy development, even as a practicing lawyer. And it kind of married that interest I had in um, uh, in in policy and um, and law with um, the the technical scientific um, expertise that that I also wanted to develop.
0: Well, now um, I actually have a, a professor uh, here at Ohio State, Professor Dennis Hirsch, that he was a former um environmental lawyer and then he switched to to privacy and cybersecurity law and he he always talks about how he feels like there's a big connection between you know uh, some huge environmental oil spill or something like that and and like a, a cyber crime like data um you know hacks and data leaks and uh, do you see those those uh connections at all
1: yeah i i think so i i think in some ways um environmental law seeks to redress some of the externalities of industrial development. So we have pollute, you know, pollution isn't the desired outcome of industrialization, but it's it it's a an externality and a byproduct that we have to control through law. And right. in some ways, privacy feels similar. Um, like the the use and extraction of personal data is. Part of um, digital economies right now. And the misuse therefore is kind of an externality in the same way. So I I do see some parallels and I think um, Dennis and I probably aren't the only ones. Um, I had a conversation with with Rita Hymas about this. She's the GC at the IAPP. uh, And she also was a former environmental lawyer um, and when she was practicing in Maine, some of her work involved um, fisheries regulations. And she, uh, we were talking about the GDPR's requirement to have a data protection officer within the company back when the GDPR was first passed. And she told me it reminded me of um, some fisheries legislation that requires um, fishermen to have uh, someone from the federal government on their boat watching to make sure they're um, handling um, bycatch appropriately, like you've got the idea that you're sort of inviting in the inspector, um, she thought was a concept that that borrowed heavily from what she'd seen in her, her environmental practice.
0: Fascinating. Interesting. Um, OK, so in law school, you were sort of already thinking towards the end of law school, thinking about a career in privacy. Have you, did you do any privacy? In, experiences in law school, or not until you got uh, to the IPP?
1: Nothing at all. Um, I was, uh, you know, very slowly coming around to the idea of doing privacy. Uh, Some of these professors had mentioned it, I, you know, valued their advice. um, But uh, I guess can be a bit thick headed and hadn't quite appreciated how good their advice was. Uh, And in fact, Danielle Citron encouraged me to apply for a fellowship with um, the IAPP to do their Western Fellowship. Uh, and I kind of looked at it and was like, OK, maybe I'll apply, maybe not. And she harassed me for weeks. She was like, you haven't submitted your application yet. Every time I saw her in the halls, she she would ask if I submitted it and harass me until I finally did. Uh, and uh, I don't know why I was so um, why I dragged my feet and why I was reluctant, but it, it ultimately would um, a great thing and I I owe her so much for not just you know pointing me in the right direction but also making sure that I followed through
0: well you know talk about that a little bit more as far as like you know having a a mentor or someone there that really pushes you to uh what you can you know what what you can become
1: yeah I, I think it's really important um uh I, I really benefited from being at a small school in Maryland. Everyone knows each other. The professors are, are kind of looking out for you and genuinely want to form relationships to help you and are great resources. Um, and throughout my career, I've, I have I've really benefited, uh, not just from the mentors I had in law school, but ones I had later through my career. Um, you know, um, I'm not sure if your audience is, you know, other students who are trying to figure out how to get in but I, I think the lesson is to, um, in a sense, it's helpful to let people mentor you. Um, often there are people who wanna serve as mentors. And um, as, as a student or someone who's new in their career, it's easy to, um, at times you can sort of shut yourself off because you don't have the answers and you don't wanna expose your vulnerabilities. Um, But by being really open and having conversations with people you trust and sharing, you know, your hopes and fears, you can let them in and let them shape your life in ways that are really important.
0: Yeah, great advice. Uh, Okay, so then let's move to, so right after law school, you ended up doing the uh, Weston Fellowship. And I imagine you're probably one of the pretty first ones in 2015, uh, which was right at the time of the GDPR. So uh, talk about that experience.
1: Yeah, so I, I came out of law school knowing that privacy was a thing I should look at, but not really knowing anything substantively about what it was. Uh, and yeah, it was the third year of of privacy fellows of Weston fellows. Um, so still right near the beginning, um, and my fellowship started in end of August or early September, and I think within a couple weeks. Um, The Court of Justice of the European Union handed down the first TREMS decision, which um, struck down the safe harbor, the EU-U.S. safe harbor framework for for data sharing. Um, And at that point, uh, I didn't really know what privacy law was. I knew in the U.S. there weren't, uh, there wasn't any sort of single federal law. And I certainly didn't know that there was anything that restricted the transfer of data across borders. But all of a sudden it's coming into focus that um, the the future of EU-US trade uh, and especially trade in digital services might be compromised by by lawmaking and um, litigation happening in Europe that I didn't know about or understand. And it fascinated me. Uh, So I dove into learning about European law um, and learning about Human rights law and the charter, and these data transfer issues, uh, which led me, of course, to the GDPR, which um, towards the end of 2015 was um, in its final stages of um, uh, uh, of being legislated. So, um, was reading the the different drafts that the council and the commission and the and parliament were uh, were throwing around, and followed the trilogue negotiations really closely. Um, and, uh, through just pursuing my curiosity, I became, um, somewhat of the GDPR expert in the office, not, not because I really was an expert, but because, uh, I guess I was one of the few people who had read the document and read several drafts of it cover to cover. And so when people would ask, Hey, what does the GDPR say about this? Um, I knew because I'd read it. Uh, and, you know, I think there's another lesson there that sometimes just um, doing the work and, and sort of reading closely uh, the the legal documents can help you become an expert um, way more quickly than you'd expect. At the, the threshold for what it takes to be an expert is often lower than you think.
0: Interesting. You know, did it matter that it was such a new, you know, there really were no experts at that time?
1: Uh, well, you know, with my ignorance and hubris, that's what I felt as well. Uh, this is a brand new document. Here's an opportunity for me because, uh, you know, other, other people have read it. Maybe a few other people have read it too, but we're all in the same boat of interpreting this document anew. So I think that absolutely helped. Um, I will say now with the benefit of hindsight and having worked with some great people um, in Europe, Uh, the GDPR was really um, not as much of uh, a revolution as it was an evolution from the directive that existed before. And there were people with a huge amount of knowledge and expertise in the directive. Um, So uh, yes, it certainly helps that that this is a new document, but um, maybe it was a bit of hubris not to appreciate just how deep the the sort of scholarship was, um, and legal practice was in Europe at that time
0: already. Interesting. You know, do you think it's sort of a, a similar thing with AI that it's you know it's been around for a long time, but it's getting a lot of attention now? Is uh, what what do you see there?
1: Oh, um, good question. I don't I don't really know the answer to that. Uh, you know, I I think people have been thinking about AI principles. For a long time, and so what we're seeing now is is sort of an application of those principles to new, different types of AI. You know, generative AI is obviously the, the big thing right now, um, but it does seem like some of the old principles apply. Um, I think AI might turn out to be a bit different. There there seems to be, well, in in Europe the regulation is proceeding in sort of a centralized way. Uh, there's the a, the proposed AI. AI act, which would regulate the use of the technology in certain ways Um, in the US. I think we're seeing it proceed. um, Yes, there are sort of uh, federal initiatives like the NIST framework, but I think we're also seeing um, considerations of AI being worked into sectoral guidance and um, thinking so you know, I—that's a long-winded way of saying I'm—I'm I'm not sure exactly. I think that AI is newer, and—and um, and the regulation of AI is newer than how established data protection was at the time that the GDPR came in. Um, It—it's true that AI has been around for a while, but it's really developed in sophistication um, in the last decade beyond what what was capable before, what was possible before.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Okay, um, now after the Weston Fellowship, you actually moved uh, across the pond to London, and uh, I guess talk about you know that decision to go to Bird and Bird in in London and and uh, your experience there.
1: Yeah, so this was an outgrowth of just spending the year focused on European law, um, right? Yeah. Uh, seeing the GDPR come in, I I thought it would be fascinating to be in a position where I could um, Help companies from the ground in Europe and see what this seismic change would look like from, from that vantage point. Um, so I um, I applied for a position with, with Bird and Bird in London, um, actually through a really happy coincidence. Um, Ruth Boardman, who co-leads the practice of Bird and Bird in London, was a board member at the IAPP and had interviewed me for the Weston Fellowship. Uh, so when it sort of dawned on me that maybe I should look into opportunities in Europe. The first website I looked at was Bird and Birds and I saw they had a posting for a data protection associate. And um, I emailed her, I asked, hey, would you consider like an idiot Canadian with a US degree who knows nothing about Europe? You know, Would you be open to this? And she said, sure. So I applied and uh, I'm really glad it worked out and I'm glad she took a chance on me.
0: That's great, talk about uh, what you were able to do there.
1: Yeah, so uh, I was at Bird and Bird from 2016 to uh, 2019. So two years leading up to the GDPR and then about a year after the GDPR came into force. The first two years were, um, you know, at the beginning it's just a huge amount of change, trying to learn what it is to be a lawyer at a law firm. Um, balancing the volume of work with the uh, demands for quality and rigor, uh, and just trying to understand what it takes to be a, a practicing lawyer. Um, but we were also drinking from a fire hose. all of a sudden the world is waking up to the potential extraterritorial application of this law to them. and it's unfamiliar for European companies, yeah, it's an outgrowth of the directive, but for us and other foreign Non-European companies who'd never really dealt with European privacy law before—it uh, it was just an, an enormous change and very frightening um, because they they didn't know how strictly it would be enforced, and of course there was the potential for huge fines. So we were we were dealing for for two years with a lot of concern um, and um, and fear and trying to help um, companies navigate. Um, this really uncertain time of of what it would mean to comply with this new regulation.
0: Interesting, and being that you were in London was like Brexit at all playing, uh, I think that was probably right when you got there, right around when you got there, was that uh, had any impact?
1: Yeah, um, interesting you raise it. So uh, I I was offered the position, um, I think it must've been March, 2016, Um, And I would start in September 2016 and in the intervening period, I think in June, um, the UK voted to Brexit. I obviously assumed I wouldn't have a job after that. Everyone was talking about the economy cratering. But um, thankfully, um, Ruth reassured me that um, I was still I was still being hired and I didn't have to go look for another job. Um, And Brexit just played constantly in the background while we were handling GDPR. It was sort of ever present on the news, ever present in you know discussions with our other colleagues, um, and of course had an Im- impact on GDPR too. There were questions about what it would mean for the UK's implementation of this law and how it would align with um, you know when the GDPR came into force and, and how the different versions of Brexit that were playing out would affect what co- what companies ultimately had to do. So. Um, it was just one more layer of complexity. We were adjusting our advice um, to to reflect what the latest thinking was on, on how Brexit would go.
0: Interesting. Now, um, okay, so after that uh, experience in London, you came back to America and uh, talk about, you know, your time uh, at Covington.
1: Yeah, so um, while I was in London, um, my girlfriend at the time, stayed in DC and we were having long conversations about which side of the Atlantic we were gonna live on. For a while, it looked like um, the European side might win, Um, but um, ultimately my my then girlfriend, now wife, um, got a great job offer um, in DC and decided she wasn't gonna come over. So I I came back to DC. Um, It also happened to be good timing career-wise. California had passed the CCPA and there was all this talk about potential federal legislation and a lot of interest in um, having a deep understanding of how the GDPR worked in Europe to inform some of that. Um, So at at Covington, I had the opportunity to work with a firm with a really strong um, European presence um, and a strong U.S. presence. And I was able to Maintain my European present, uh, European practice, working with partners in um, in the UK and Belgium, uh, while also building up um, my knowledge and skill set on the U.S. side, um, and ultimately was doing about fifty percent U.S. law, fifty percent European law, um, and advising some really large clients on global privacy issues.
0: Wow, that's great. Um, Now, I think also around that time you started teaching uh, and you're still teaching now as an adjunct professor at Maine uh, Law School. So talk about, I guess, how you got into into teaching and uh, your time as a professor.
1: Yeah, um, when I was doing the IAPP fellowship, I had a chance to guest lecture in what was then Omer Tene's uh, global privacy law class at Maine Law School. Um, and the experience went really well. I really enjoyed it and kind of made very clear to everybody involved how much I enjoyed it. Uh, so when there was, um, when they were looking for someone to to step in to teach the class, um, thankfully, they, they thought of me. Um, Rita Hymas was director of the program. She's, I mentioned her before, she's the GC at IAPP and a former professor at Maine Law. Uh, and um, she uh, she thought of me, she asked if I'd be interested and uh, five years later I'm still doing it. It's such a great opportunity to get to work with students on these issues.
0: Wow and uh, what do you teach there?
1: So I, I teach the Global Privacy Law class. Um, Maine has a summer privacy program that runs about four weeks um, with mm-hmm. four different classes and Global Privacy Law is the the intro class for the program It's like one semester in one week. It's quite intense uh, for everyone involved, but really great. Um, And I think my favorite part has been seeing how differently the students are thinking about privacy each year. Um, So just in the five years I've been teaching it, um, initially students were like, what is this privacy thing and why should I care? And we'd spend uh, probably half of the first day just trying to figure out what privacy is and why it matters to them as US students. Um, And now students come in completely armed and understanding how important privacy is uh, and how um, established the area of law is. Um, So they come in with quite a lot of background knowledge, much more than they had back then, um, and much more appreciation for, um, you know, what we're talking about, when we're talking about um, data privacy. Um, so, so that's been remarkable for me.
0: Wow. You know, given that they, they come in with a background already, do you feel like there are some misconceptions that they have or that you think like that? you know, they're coming in with a pretty accurate, uh, background?
1: Oh, good question.
0: Uh, I, I
1: think there are misconceptions. Um, one of the prevailing misconceptions, um, is that there is no law in the U.S. I think that uh, is something that that we dispel through our class. Yes, there isn't a comprehensive U.S. privacy law, and um, yes, the sectoral framework and the, the patchwork of state laws um, leaves significant gaps and may not be strong enough in some instances. Um, but it It is enough to drive corporate behavior, or it does drive corporate behavior in ways that I think the students don't appreciate until they take the class. Um, And then I think also uh, another misconception that students have is um, around how privacy laws work. I I, I think there's uh, a sense that it's more. sub or more more directional than it is I, I think students don't appreciate how much of privacy law is focused on procedural issues um like uh, risk assessments and notices and choices and less focused on specific um rules of the road for different use cases i think that's that's a big learning curve for a lot of students
0: right And, you know, do you think that the students have it right there or or is it good that it's more procedural in practice? I
1: I think it's, uh, I I think their instincts are right. I think we're moving in the direction of regulating uses and we have to do it thoughtfully. Um, But I think that um, there is a need for clear rules. Um, and and I think a greater appreciation that procedural protections and especially notice and choice are not sufficient or up to the task. We're certainly seeing the FTC move in that direction. I think the GDPR moves beyond just notice and choice through a lot of the internal accountability measures. I think those are a good start, Um, but I don't think this is the end point of where privacy laws will get to.
0: Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And, um, so let's get to where you're at now. So now you're at Goodwin and, uh, I guess, talk about the decision to, um, you know, start at Goodwin and then uh, what you've been able to do there so far for the last couple of years.
1: Yeah. Well, we we've talked about a bit about mentors and I've had a number of really important mentors through my career. Um, and, and one of the most important, uh, is Omer Tene who, um, was, um, the research director and chief knowledge officer at the IAPP when I was doing the fellowship. Um, And, you know, someone I've worked closely with for a long time since then. Um, We've written papers together and he's helped me make career decisions along the way. And I I count him as a friend. Uh, He's also, um, for those who have met him, a very um, engaging and charismatic and interesting guy. Uh, and uh, not the typical uh, sort of stern law firm figure. So when he uh, told me in um, 2021 that he was moving on from the IABB and was joining Goodwin to help build a privacy team, um, I thought one, it'd be a great opportunity to work with him again, and I couldn't pass that up. And two, I had to see what it look, what it would look like for a guy like that to be at a law firm. <laughs> um, and it hasn't disappointed. Um, we're you know, very much in the process of building our practice. Goodwin has um, a, a really great platform. We uh, serve a lot of small and mid-sized technology and life sciences companies that have really huge and global privacy issues, um, but are at the stage now where they're just building their privacy programs um, and so, you know, we're we're building up a team to help serve this client base. Um, and it's just been really interesting. Um, working with companies that size, you get much more deeply ingrained with the business and help them make decisions that are not just legal in nature, but also uh, reflect their business realities. So it's been um, a big learning curve for me, a really awesome opportunity to work with a great team and just really fun.
0: Interesting. You know, you're saying that Omer sort of has his own uh, flavor and do you feel like he's been able to bring that uh, to Goodwin and, you know, is there sort of a subculture of uh, the privacy pros that are there?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I I think our team is more laid back than most are in in the big law world. Um, And that certainly comes from the top.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Um, okay, so let's talk about, uh, you know, looking looking ahead. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, what you see uh, in the years ahead. And I guess what areas, you know, um, personally and, and just in general, the, the privacy landscape, uh, what, do, what do you see uh, ahead?
1: Uh, well, this question terrifies me, because last time I was on a podcast and was asked to give predictions for the future, I was wildly wrong. I think I said that I thought data transfers would not be a big deal this year. And what was it, two weeks ago that Meta got fined 1.2 um, billion euros. So, um, you know, I, I probably am more qualified to to make uh, predictions about the future, um, I'm also not very good at deciding what I want in life. Um, So, uh, you know, I'll do my best here. I think personally, what I'm, you know, what I'm excited about and looking for in my career is to continue um, to have opportunities to learn, to develop my own subject matter expertise, um, but also to have opportunities to teach others, whether, you know, within our own team um, or through the law school, um, and also to get to write um, about um, developments and about policy and just help advance the tech policy conversation. What are the big issues? I think AI obviously is, is a huge one. Um, it, we are um, still grasping the implications for privacy and for data protection um, arising from the the rapid increase in power of these tools and I think that will be an issue for a long time going forward. We're also starting to appreciate the non-privacy and non-data protection considerations of these technologies and a huge question mark is how those will get addressed um, and and who is going to own them, how we, how we sort of control those other issues. So um, I think there's going to continue to be uh, uh, huge opportunities in that space. Um, I think we're also seeing, um, developments around, um, health data and sensitive data. Um, mm. the pandemic has exposed the power of, um, uh, of this technological moment. Um, so we're just seeing, you know, huge investment in biotech companies, that are really revolutionizing what we're capable of doing and um, have the potential to, um, you know, cure what we thought were incurable diseases and advance the human condition. Um, But some of these technologies are powered on the most private and sensitive and immutable data characteristics about us. Um, So how we balance, you know, innovation that can have real tangible impact for people um, against you know the the really potentially scary privacy risks of these technologies, um, all of this, by the way, happening in a context where um, patients have um, often have very little power vis-a-vis um, these practices because you're you're desperate. you you are looking for cures and solutions. so I, I think you know this area is going to continue to be hot. We're seeing the FTC get involved. Through recent enforcement actions, Um, I think we're we're seeing um, increasing um, interest in Europe through the development of health data spaces to look for cures, Um, in addition to you know the the pre-existing GDPR regulations of of health data. So I think that's a huge area. Um, And then I I think kids and online content and and digital addiction will also continue to be hot areas for, for the next years um, as we're seeing, you know, people spend more of their time online and, and you know, compounded by the, the risks that AI presents. Um, so I, I think those are certainly big areas. Um, you know, looking at Europe, I think that um, we've seen that data protection laws like the GDPR can um, create incentives to lock down data in ways that can stifle competition. And so I think some of the European data strategy um, and anxiety about um, you know, the growth of, of tech giants is driving interest in policy making that will open up um, data uses for public benefit purposes. So how do we protect privacy while also promoting um, innovation, um, you know, human-centered innovation? Uh, I think that's going to be an increasing part of the conversation as um, privacy laws continue to proliferate.
0: Fascinating. Now, for you specifically, what what areas, you know, do you find most interesting?
1: I I think probably all the above. Um, One of the benefits of getting to practice with small companies is that the questions can come from every angle. So you have to be um, you know, ready and able to address any of these concerns, to go deep when you need to, but also to stay general enough that you're able to spot issues. And also to have great colleagues who can help you um, really dig in when you have um, uh, issues in, in sort of narrow areas where others have more expertise than you do.
0: Interesting. You know, to talk about the uh, AI regulation a little bit, do you think it makes sense that, that privacy pros are the first ones to dip their toes into that that those waters or, or is there another group that's, you know, better suited for it? Or what do you think about that?
1: I think it, it's hard to have this conversation at that level of abstraction because I think it depends mm-hmm. on the application. Uh, wow. So... Uh, You know, if we're talking about um, AI in terms of like resume screening or um, employment practices, then I think privacy is absolutely, you know, the most probably the most central factor there. But AI is powering a whole lot of stuff that isn't all that privacy sensitive. Uh, If we, you know, shift to the automotive sector or mobility, you know, AI is gonna power self-driving cars. And there, I think the dominant concern is making sure that cars don't crash and that people are safe. And I think privacy doesn't really factor in at the same level. It's it's not the major concern. So um, I, I think privacy will remain a core component of how we think about AI. And certainly I think some of the frameworks we use for privacy regulation are applicable. To AI, um, but whether privacy pros are best place to to manage these risks, I think will absolutely depend on what sector you're talking
0: about. Yeah, very uh, yeah, nice nuanced answer there. So, um, okay, my last question for you is: What are some of the uh, steps and people and you know interactions, experiences? know uh pieces of advice what what are things that you know you feel like have really propelled you uh to get to where you are today
1: oh um so uh certainly relying on good mentors you know seek out people who are kind and want to make time for you and you know don't abuse their time but um don't be afraid to ask them for advice and to engage with them um, because a lot of people do want to serve as mentors and have lots to give um, and uh, won't be able to do so if you're too shy to ask for it. So don't be afraid to ask for help and advice. Um, You know, I I think the other thing that I've I've been really lucky to have is um, the chance to develop subject matter expertise at various points in my career. So um, if you're just starting out, um, learning about something and following your curiosity and going deep on really anything that you find interesting, you'll find that um, the ability to do that analysis will be transferable. And people are looking for those who are able to really understand what it is they're they're working on. Um, so for me, um, that was going deep on GDPR when it when it first came out. I think now GDPR is so broad you probably wanna pick something narrower, but um, you know, find find things that interest you and learn everything you can about it. Um, that will show through your writing, it'll show through your conversations and people really value it.
0: Yeah, great advice. Okay, and with that, uh, I'll read the rhyme and then we'll sign off here. So, Gabe Maldorf went to McGill. Now he works near Capitol Hill. Gabe is a lawyer at Goodwin and a professor at Maine He's now an expert in the privacy domain. And uh, thank you so much, Gabe, for joining the podcast.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Noah.
0: I appreciate it.